Welcome to the Psych NP Cast, a podcast made specifically for psychiatric mental health nurse practitioners and their peers. You're about to enjoy, be educated, and entertained about your profession. Just remember, folks, the views you hear on this show are those of our amazing guests. Always validate what you do through your best practice guidelines and patient care standards. Now, let's get to the show. That's right. Let's get to the show. Indeed, indeed. Hi, everybody. Once again, I'm your host, Ed Stern. My pronouns are he, him, his, and you're listening to Psych NPcast. We have a two-parter for you this time around. I'm going to let my guest introduce herself in a moment, but Lucy Fielding's book was recently published called Transsex, Clinical Approaches to Transsexualities and Erotic Embodiments. And we're going to spend some time talking to Lucy, talking about so many different things that we really just had to break it up into two separate episodes just to give you a chance to take a break in between. Lucy's going to talk to us about trans identity, transsexuality, and how it applies in the clinical mental health setting. We're also going to spend a little bit of time talking about the kink community and so many other things. Before we get started with this episode, I do want to cover two housekeeping things for you to pay attention to. First, like I said, this is a two-part episode. Both of the episodes are loaded and ready for you to listen to feel free to switch between them as you deem fit. If you're subscribed, you automatically get them both loaded onto your mobile device. So that's something for you to consider. Also, keep in mind, we are talking about sex. We are professional clinicians, but we are talking about sex. So keep in mind for yourself, who's within earshot of what you're listening to, this is not necessarily the kind of thing we want our little ones hanging around unless you are an extremely open and affirming household. Lucy and I could have probably spoken for hours on a variety of different topics. She's a very, very knowledgeable practitioner, and I'm going to let Lucy explain why she has this vast knowledge. Lucy, why don't you go ahead and introduce yourself? Hi. So um, thank you so much, first of all, for having me on the pod. Uh, this is so exciting. My name is uh, Lucy Fielding. I am a uh, white, um, queer, um, trans femme. Um, and femme is both my gender identity and my queer identity. I'm also kinky, polyamorous, visib- visibly able-bodied, and, um, and Jewish. Um, and I am a resident in counseling or a therapist under supervision in Virginia. Um, and, um, I'm part of a group practice in Charlottesville, Virginia. I am also the author of new book, um, Transsex Clinical Approaches to Transsexualities and Erotic Embodiments. So. Wow. So many things we could talk about in that here, you know, hi, here's what I am. There's so many great things, but I'm really excited to have you here um, to talk about your book. And this is a great opportunity for us to talk about all the things that you've covered in the book and, uh, you know, and, and so much more. Um, so transsex clinical approaches to trans sexualities 
and erotic embodiments. Mm -hmm. Wow. Covers a lot. I guess the first question I have to ask is how long have you been working on the book? Your whole I mean, life, right? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, uh, I mean, really just uh, five years. And just, <laughs> yeah, I mean, um, I've been thinking about it for five, writing it for two. Um, and, um, or it, it, I started writing and from like, from the moment I started putting pen to paper to the time that it gets published in May, that'll be two years. Um, so, um, and it really is born out of, when I say that I've been thinking about it for five years, um, that's also coincidentally the amount of time that I have been trained to be a sex therapist and, um, also engaging in, um, a gender transition. Um, and so like what would happen is, you know, I, I was experiencing life from both sides of the couch. Um, on the one hand, you know, I am a trans client and trans patient. And so I am talking to a whole bunch of really wonderful gender affirming providers. I'm, I, I've been very, um, very, very privileged with respect to my care team. They, they, they're, Freaking unicorns, love them. That's awesome. Um, and um, you know, at that same time, I'm also you know, um, I'm in all of these trainings about you know being a therapist and being a sex therapist and a sex educator. And um, I also have a background in literature and history. I have a PhD in. French and a specialization in erotic literature and history oh of goodness. sexuality. <laughs> and so like, I am, I'm kind of like, you know, I'm everything that I'm hearing in both worlds on both sides of the couch are really um, informing one another and making me think like, okay, there's some, some things over here in what, um, you know, is kind of problematic in terms of provider education. And then there is, um, or some things that aren't getting translated from, um, from kind of current research in sexology, sex education, and aren't making it into gender affirmative care. So, mm. and I occupy this incredibly privileged position where like I am, very comfortable calling in and asking really pointed questions um, to and being a really clear self advocate with respect to um, my um, my care team and um, and I recognize that that not every client not every patient is going to feel comfortable calling in their endocrinologist or would have the knowledge to be able to say like when an endocrinologist says or a prescriber of hormones mm -hmm. um says well you know one of the side effects is a drop in libido and you know like i know from like um the ways that we think about um desire in in um 
you know, a lot of the sexological research around like responsive versus spontaneous desire, Mm -hmm. that that is, um, that, you know, we're moving away from libido theory um, and from drive theory, like sex is not a drive. (laughs) And I'm hearing, you know, like I'm, I'm imagining what another trans client or patient might get from that kind of um, guidance with respect to informed consent, which is not nearly nuanced enough. Mm. And, um, and so, yeah, that's where the book comes from. And, Mm -hmm. and, and it, that's where it, it started was just these conversations that I would have with providers, both as a provider in training and as a client and patient. Wow. That's just, I mean, what a great reason to start. (laughs) Um, I mean, the, the, the smart aleck in me has to say, okay, so your PhD is in French. The book's written in English. Yes. Right. <laughs> Just, I mean, you know, put that well, out there. But if you want to translate it into French and sell it in France and, and any Francophone country, please, by all means. <laughs> That's right. Let's, let's talk. Let's do that. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, let's, let's make sure it's successful in English. <laughs> and I'm sure it will be. That's just so amazing. I mean, so you brought up an interesting point, right? So, I mean, you have the advantage of having so many different life experiences that, um, you know, that helped identify for you where, where this book needs to, needs to go. What would you say the goal of, of this book is for you? Well, a couple of things. I think one is to help providers feel more empowered around Mm -hmm. sexual health conversations and, and broadening kind of how we view um, eroticism and sexuality Mm -hmm. Um, because a lot of what we're taught, you know, is of course informed by let's face it, a bunch of white cis um, men in Central Europe um, right. in the late 19th century, early 20th Freud. century. Excuse me, Freud. <clears throat> Freud, or um, <laughs> you know, um, and I and I noticeably did not say het, you know, or straight, you know, like, right. um, oh well, yeah, you know, like I think about um, uh, so many of these pioneers um, in gender affirmative care um, were queer. Um, you know, and, um, but they were also cis. And so, and from a very white Western Central European and American frame set of frameworks. And so they were very much seeing the world and seeing and interacting with their clients and patients from that perspective. And so what we're taught in our programs about gender, for example, Mm -hmm. is really heavily informed about that, you know, so by that. Um, So, you know, for example, like one of the the common um, discourses around 
gender and, and, and trans folks and transition is the idea that, um, that trans folks were born in the wrong body. And if you trace that back, that's going back to 19th century inversion theory. That's Havelock Ellis, that's Freud. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and, you know, which was one of the more kind of, um, one of the first kind of explanatory theories for queerness. Um, and, and, you know, it's this idea that, you know, like, well, um, queer folks, the way that we can justify this is that they have their souls or their brains are of the, um, of another gender, um, but they were born in the wrong body. And so like, um, and so a lot of the ways that we then approach gender affirmative care is like correcting that um, mm-hmm. instead of thinking about like, there's so many other ways to think about um, what what it is to embody gender in a, yeah. in a culture and like what um, what various clients and patients might be seeking. And um, it also assumes that like um, all trans and non-binary folks want to pursue a transition, want to pursue medical transition pathways mm-hmm. um, and want to do so with Western medicine or Western um, psychotherapeutic pers- um, perspectives, mm-hmm. you know? And so like another goal of the book is is to think about um, WPATH or the um, World um, uh, uh, Professional Association for Transgender Health. Um, you know, they talk about a multidisciplinary team or an MDT, right. mm-hmm. and generally that for them means medical providers and maybe therapists, uh, mental mm-hmm. health providers. Mm-hmm. Um, mixed in there. And I really wanted to think about like, no, this is a much bigger MDT. This is more about like sexological body workers or surrogate partners or professional dominance or um, uh, pelvic floor PTs or ancestral folks who practice medicine from ancestral healing traditions. Um, And that have been along with certain genders been subject to cultural erasure um, as part of settler colonialism. <laughs> I don't even know where to start. You said you mentioned so many things. I, see, Sorry. I, see, I, I know. Have you thought about writing a book about all? Oh, wait, no, that's what we're talking about. Um, I see a series in here. Um so while you were talking, I was I was jotting down some notes. Uh, so <clears throat> since we're talking to, you know, a, a psychiatric NP, predominantly psychiatric NP uh, audience, I want to focus on a few of the things you talked about that that might you know play into um, situations for you know for that audience specifically. Um, so one thing that you mentioned that I think is important. That, that we cover because I haven't talked about this on, on other episodes uh, is the, the assumption of, of wrong body. And so I want to make sure that, that 
we want to make sure that we're talking to to our patients that are part of the trans non-binary community and we're using the right terminology. So from a from a sexual identity perspective, from a trans identity perspective, um, what you're saying is, well, let me ask it a different way. Elaborate a little bit more, right? The, the assumptive is body, right? If we look at the DSM, right, there's a disconnect between the brain and, and the way the individual mm-hmm. feels. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's an oversimplification. Folks who are DSM crazy people don't, don't come after me, but it's an oversimplification. So what's your perspective on that? Again, I, I think um, even the DSM is an oversimplification. And <laughs> fair enough. <laughs> um, so, like uh, the DSM five, you know, like the the chapter is referred to as gender dysphoria. It used to be gender identity disorder, and right. so like a mental health disorder. It's not a mental health disorder. The way that I think about gender dysphoria is it's a state of being, you know, mm-hmm. or it's a it's an it's a it's an and gender identity is an embodied felt sense, you know, yeah. um, of um, and and it's it's the way that I think about it too is is that it's often like this mitch, mismatch between the cultures we are moving in mm-hmm. that are imposing particular gender expressions and roles and feelings and meanings around gender. Like we, we can't end sexuality and sex mm-hmm. and eroticism that we can't, you know, um, that we're constantly swimming in, whether we like it or not. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, and it's, it's that the way that I think about it is that there's this, sense this very visceral sense that dawns upon us at some point um that says like hmm, you know like what what is being assumed about me what is being thrown at me doesn't quite doesn't fit with me Mm -hmm. um it it's um I don't quite know what this is, but it just like it, I know that it's not me. Um, in narrative therapy practices, we talk about the the client coming in with a problem saturated narrative, yeah. which is the idea that instead of a presenting concern, um, you know, it's a problem saturated narrative. It's the things that a particular um, culture our society, you know, it kind of, um, or family system is, um, is throwing at us quite unconsciously, um, sometimes and quite, um, unintentionally, um, is throwing at us. And then we come to therapy because we have this inchoate, um, sense that something just isn't right with that story. Mm-hmm. And the therapeutic process, to my to my um, understanding of it, is about helping to widen the cracks and to 
help empower the client, the patient, to um, to come into their own vision of what how gender, sex, sexuality, eroticism lives in them. Um, and um, this is not to say that people do not, you know, experience, you know, a, a, a felt sense of like, I was born in the wrong body. For some folks, that is exactly how they feel. Yeah. And um, that is great. Um, what I want to make room for are like, like, um, I used to get like all sorts of questions from my family members. Like, when did you know? Um, you know, from my mother, for example, who, you know, like really sweetly was like, you know, did I not notice something? Did I, you know, shut you down, you know, and things like that. And it was like, no, I, I, this is not like something that I have, I don't feel like I was born in the wrong body. I merely, as I've moved through the world, I've just kind of, I've learned that I can experience my body and and other folks' bodies in different ways. And I like that better. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, and so like, you know, experiencing queerness and, um, you know, as, as a, as a teen and, um, in, in the nineties and, you know, and, um, and, and seeing what was possible in terms of the ways that like I could embody my sexuality and, Mm. and then, you know, and then only then, like, as I started having sexual romantic relationships with other folks, um, that, and they would tell me things like, you know, um, well, I really feel a different energy from you, you know, like, um, that, and it was like, oh, I really like the energy and the intention that you are bringing to my body. Mm. I don't know what this is, but (laughs) I, I like it. And, so like, you know, I'm wanting this put in a lot of time to figure out what the heck this is. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it just so happened that, you know, finally I could put words together to say like, I'm queer, I'm trans, I'm non-binary, I'm a femme. Um, and those descriptors fit me um, like a leather glove molded on my hand in a way that like man didn't um, and in a way that like mask didn't mm-hmm. in a way that woman didn't um, mm-hmm. quite. Right. Almost. Interesting that somebody like 90% who's 90% there with. Me. Yeah. Interesting. Who's somebody who talks about kink would pick a leather glove, but that's, you know, we'll solve conversation for another time. That's intense. Uh, <laughs> good. Um, I knew I liked you. Uh, so, not necessarily part of the book, but but you brought us down a road that I think it's also important to talk about is, is so in your professional opinion and your personal experience, if, if you want to share that aspect of it, can you be, 
It's a leading question. So un- understand that. Can you be part of the transgender community without the diagnosis of gender dysphoria? Yes. Can you short elaborate answer, on? Yes. Yeah, right. So can uh, you elaborate the short answer on is that? Yes. And yeah. uh, the longer answer is like, um, again, going back to history mm-hmm. and, um, you know, Harry Benjamin in the transsexual phenomenon, 1966 landmark book mm-hmm. in terms of gender affirming care, particularly in um, the United States and Western Europe. And indeed, particularly in 1966. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. And and formerly the Harry Benjamin Society is what it was uh, called before it was, Mm. um, um, uh, before it became WPATH. And, um, and he really took like things like inversion theory and, um, and really, you know, tried to come up with an explanatory model that also came out of his work. He was a, a student of Magnus Hirschfeld um, um, and the uh, the Institute for, um, I, I can't remember the, the exact name of the Institute, but it's like, if you look at all the book burning pictures from the Nazis in the 1930s, they mm. were burning Magnus Hirschfeld's mm-hmm. books. Okay. Um, and um, among others, yes, <laughs> among others, but yeah, yeah. Um, but um, so Harry Benjamin is coming out of this tradition, and he's trying to say, well, um, this is what is a true transsexual. Mm-hmm. Um, so using that that term really for the the first time, mm-hmm. um, and and he he posits, you know, all sorts of things that suddenly become part of the standards of care um, and or the um, admission criteria for the gender clinics that would start to pop up in the 60s and 70s mm-hmm. and start to close down in the 80s. Um, and one of these was that, like, you had to, if you were trans, um, if you were truly trans, you had to hate your body. You had to be particularly disgusted with your genitals and find the entire idea of having a sex life um, in the body in which you were born absolutely repugnant. And that was just like how it, that's, and so that became part of the selection criteria of who was, you know, admitted to these programs and who could have access mm-hmm. to, um, to care. And a whole lot of other things had to be present too. Like you had to basically um, leave your families uh, behind, especially if um, you would come out the other side as queer um, because they wanted to ensure that you were going to come out as straight Mm -hmm. um, from the entire process and that you were, um, and there was no, you know, like non-binary gender, there was no kind of gray area about it. And, um, and so, and you see like in periodicals, there's a, a incredible, um, collection of these periodicals at the Library of Congress um, and 
uh, the curator of that collection, Meg Metcalf, um, you know, showed me a couple of them. And one of them is, it, it's like 1967 and it's a trans zine that came out um, and that was basically excerpting parts of the transsexual phenomenon. Hmm. Basically, this is what you have to say mm -hmm. in order to access treatment. Hmm. And so this starts getting into um, the discourse of this is how I access, this is how I um, access care. And by the way, the people who are accessing care um, are all, are mostly all white um, at these gender yeah. clinics. Yeah. Um, and so, um, and, um, but getting back to the question, um, what that obscures is a lot of experiences of gender and embodiments of gender, especially historically. And in like the, the term trans or the term non-binary is, is rather new. Yeah. Um, you know, however, and the, evolving. Yeah. And evolving yeah. Yeah. constantly. But the experience of like non-binary genders or gender nonconformity or gender expansiveness um, is something that can be observed in just about every culture mm -hmm. um, on this planet um, for, in some cases, millennia. Um, and so... Um, that is not new. gender expansiveness is not new, mm -hmm. um, and um, and so the the very idea of a gender binary, um, which is what is necessary for a transition, is predicated on you know these these very um, you know um, white um, colonial. Um, perspectives, older, older thinking. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And so like, if you are, um, you know, like a lot of non-binary folks, you know, they may, um, and, and to give WPATH some credit, um, like in the SOC seven, which is the operative, uh, standards of care at the moment mm -hmm. and, um, and the emerging, um, eighth edition of the standards of care, they're really making clear that non-binary path, uh, transition pathways are possible um, and are, um, you know, and that they should be supported. Um, so really glad about that. Um, they could go a lot further and I hope that the SOC 8 does that. Yeah. Um, but, um, but yeah, you can be, tr there's no such thing as trans enough or non-binary enough. Yeah. Um, enough That's is an a important capitalist point. construct. <laughs> <laughs> That's a good way to look at it. Yeah, I, I mean, I think that that's great. So let me jump to perhaps what might be the more the more essential question with, with a statement like that, right? And so the reason why I asked the question is, is because a lot of people will sit with a trans client and, you know, they're, they're seeking some sort of medication for some sort of problem. Uh, maybe they're seeking a letter 
uh, to, you know, for medical transition, um, or, you know, more accurately surgical transition. So is a, in your professional opinion, is the gender dysphoria diagnosis essential or can, if they truly aren't dysphoric, can we identify them as, you know, with whatever else it is that they have going on and, and move on? Like how, how do we use or, or choose not to use that diagnosis? I think in consultation with the, with our clients and patients, hmm. um, like any diagnosis in the DSM five or the ICD 10 or 11, mm-hmm. like we, we want to be careful that we're not imposing um, a system of values. Like, I mean, does, you know, take any diagnosis in the DSM five, like borderline personality disorder. Um, Who, like, what? <laughs> yeah. Like, I mean, you know, does, is there actually such a thing in in the world as borderline personality disorder or are really what we're talking about is like a cluster of presentations. Mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. even then we're talking about, um, you know, like we're talking about those presentations in certain extremes. Well, and I think, and I think, right. If we look at it from this perspective and, you know, it's again, maybe I'm oversimplifying. Apparently that's my trend today um, is this is why we've moved to spectrum disorders, you know, um, or, you know, why we've stopped saying alcoholic and why we've say substance use disorder, mild, moderate, severe, right. We're acknowledging the fact that people, you know, are, are somewhere on a less than linear path, mm-hmm. you know, to something and, and to try to pigeonhole everybody and say that the only reason why you're going to get your gender affirming surgery is if you get stuck with this diagnosis. And that's, mm-hmm. that's a, a, a fight that we're still, that we're still fighting because unfortunately, mm-hmm. you know, there are some insurance companies out there that seem to be stuck on that. Um, and you know, but, but you do not need, I mean, let's get down to the essential. You do not need to be dysphoric about your gender in order to identify as a member of the trans community and wish to transition. Exactly. Um, it can be a helpful diagnosis. Mm -hmm. Um, and so I want to acknowledge that like, um, that for example, I have been diagnosed as um, um, as experiencing gender dysphoria, um, and that has allowed me to access hormones, mm-hmm. um, top surgery, and I'm very glad for that. And 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 you know, like um, there's a there's a short story by um, Anam Sufi. Um, uh, titled uh, Undone. And there's this line that I just love um, at the end. She writes, um, hold me as you would a photograph from the edges and lightly. And I think with diagnoses and the way that I approach them is that we always have to hold them from the edges and lightly. <laughs> Um, you know, um, and so like some 
some clients are going to come to me and say like, I, I want to access this particular treatment pathway. I experienced gender dysphoria and, you know, and, you know, they're going yep. to yep. fit the criteria to, of mm-hmm. uh, uh, one, um, one of those, dis- um, diagnostic criteria in the, in, in the, in that chapter of the DSM-5. Mm-hmm. Um, and then some, I might, you know, say like, well, um, okay, how does dysphoria live in you? Like, okay, I know what the DSM-5 says, but how does it live in you? Mm-hmm. Um, because how it lives in me is going to be different than how um, it live, how dysphoria lives in another person's body. Like, for example, I don't have, I don't experience a ton of dysphoria around my genitalia. I, um, I do when somebody approaches my genitalia from a non-affirming place mm. with the kind of the, um, a non-affirming intention and energy. Um, like I've certainly had, um, sexual experiences where, you know, it's like, there's almost this feeling of, it's like the Terminator scan of like, okay, 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 okay. And then it gets to my crotch and it's like, oh, I don't know what to do with that. And it's like, oh, come on. (laughs) (laughs) And, and for the folks who are like, I don't know what to do with that. Like I've gotten to the point where I'm like, I'm okay. We're not going to play together. Um, like if I feel that, or if we start playing and I feel that, then, you know, we're done. Mm -hmm. Um, I have no problem packing up and going. Um, but, um, but it's the, it's the, um, it's the fact of like, it's going to look different for, for different folks and distress is sus- such a subjective measure. Yeah. Um, and, you know, is the distress, um, you know, coming like, what is, what is the source of the distress even, you know, mm-hmm. is it because of non-affirmation mm-hmm. or because of, you know, like a distress because of the incongruence? Thank you for sharing that. That's, that's, yeah, no, that's great. And I know it's a deviation from where I was going to take this conversation, but I think it's, you know, it's such a valuable uh, topic. I'll still bring it around the sex. Don't worry. Oh yeah. Well, that's what I was going to say. Are you comfortable (laughs) talking about sex? Um, (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I'm much more comfortable talking about my own sex life than I am about my, um, my clients. Um, You know, just because, I I don't want to have to anonymize it. And Mm -hmm. I also want to normalize that I'm a sexual being. I'm an erotic being. And, um, and it's fun. Yeah. Yeah. So let's talk about that. I I mean, I think that obviously that's the focus of your book. And I think, um, you know, we need to make sure that we're, we're, we're approaching this topic, you know, appropriately. So we're, you know, we're in a room full of clinicians. Um, sex is, is what it is. I do want to make sure that as we, as we go, one of the things I would like to, to see if you can kind of 
form into how you you approach the book and and the content of the book is I know that one of the thing one of the challenges that we face uh, in the in the prescribing world is uh, so let's just say. Wait, what? I just left it hanging like that? No, this is just the end of part one. Part two of this episode with Lucy Fielding is loaded and ready for you to listen to. Again, if you've subscribed to this podcast, it's already loaded onto your mobile device. If not, think about subscribing or just go to our website and look for episode two. I'm not going to say goodbye. I'm not going to say it's the end. Just listen to episode two. And we'll see you in a moment.